welcome to episode nine of the Brood Sages, Stormbound players with a head for the game. I am Freeloader, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Sabaiku and Arthas. Sabaiku, how's it going tonight? Fantastic. And Arthas, how are you doing? As always, I've been doing pretty good. <laughs> we are the Brood Sages, and as a reminder, you can always contact us at Brood Sages on Twitter. Or for all of you who dreamed of playing guitar for Whitesnake as kids, our email address is thebroodsages at gmail.com. So guys, uh, this week we were planning on discussing the upcoming changes to Stormbound uh, that were due out on November 1st. The patch notes were supposed to be released this morning. For those of you who don't know, we're recording on Monday. Because those patch notes are delayed, which itself is news... Our episode is going to be a little different, um, but we do want to also make mention that we know there are balance changes coming, and so far a few have been leaked, although none confirmed. So here's what we know so far. We know that Eloth and Cordia at least are two dragons that will be getting some sort of buff, and there's a rumor that Reign of Frogs will uh, no longer be mana reduced at uh, level five. Arthas, your thoughts on Reign of Frogs uh, now always costing two? For one, Reign of Frogs is the only card in the game left that have uh, a reduction in mana as you level it up. So, like, I mean, they changed things like Confinement and Hunter's Vengeance to now only cost a particular mana at all levels. And this is very healthy, I believe, because, uh, I mean, changing the manas as the levels progress drastically changes how the card is balanced regarding the interactions with the other mana costs of other cards. And, uh, I mean, Reign of Frogs at 1 mana at level 5 has been incredibly oppressive. A pretty common opener would be, like, Saber Paws and Reign of Frogs, mana 3, and you already clogged the board. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, Sabaiko, this was a way, um, you know, we've talked at length, you and I, about how being at lower levels against opponents can often feel oppressive because they win all of the kind of mirror trades, right? But but a mana reduction feels like kind of the next level beatdown of that of that disparity, do you think? Absolutely. When they can play the same card and it's stronger and they spend less, less mana on it, it just feels so bad to play against that. Changing the mana cost of a card is one of the biggest levers that the developers have to balance it. And the fact that it's just something that happened in normal progression of the game made it really tough. I mean, we didn't even include Reign of Frogs in our Shadowfen deck until we could play it for two mana just because it wasn't worth it at three mana. By upgrading to the card to the point where it was able to be played for two, it makes it viable. Yeah, and then at one, it's broken. <laughs> it really is. It's better so it's better summon militia. So well, <laughs> it has sure. more strength. <laughs> and distributed, right? Like yeah. so, but but I am a little concerned um because I always like the idea that uh, uh game developers have a lot of flexibility to work with, right? The the issue being that that when you have these sort of step changes of, you know, it, it now cause it's a three health unit or a four health unit. There's only a certain amount of granularity you can get to in balancing. I think it's a good idea, but Sheepyard is getting rid of one of the few levers they have to adjust cards as needed, right? So, you know, if you want to have a card that is considered to be more powerful and, and, and played at higher levels like in Diamond, either we're going to start maybe seeing larger step changes and like, you know, it goes from three to four to five to seven to eight kind of a thing and skip six or or what. But But I felt like those big step changes were kind of a motivator for leveling up cards. 
because gosh, once you hit that mana reduction, boy, was it a powerful card now. And and we're getting rid of it. I don't think it's a bad thing now, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, is is, is just movement and strength enough levers for, for adjusting cards by level? Movement, strength, and any sort of ability that affects strength or does damage is also a lever that can be tweaked. You know, we saw, for example, Void Chargers. The strength of the card didn't change, but the effect sure did, and that made it much, much better and made it actually included in decks. That's an excellent point. I'm seeing a lot of it. Yeah. Arthas, thoughts? It's really hard to say because we don't know what kind of like crazy creativity we might be seeing for future cards. I mean, we don't even know about the ability of the Stoic Protectors, which used to be Basanu, by the way, but the name changed to Stoic Protectors. I think for now, at least in the pretty relatively foreseeable future, I think it should be enough. So those are all of the upcoming changes that we've heard through the grapevine and we wanted to share with our listeners. Um, With that, we're going to have to take this podcast in a little bit of a different direction than we had intended. We're going to talk about a a topic that uh, Subaiku and I, when we were first sitting down discussing whether or not to make a podcast, we made a quick list of some of the things that we thought were burning topics that um, should be discussed somewhere in the community. And this one about tactics and mechanics and about positioning in the game, you know, both of us with our magic and hearthstone backgrounds, this is totally foreign and new to us. We felt like there was certainly uh, a need within the community to have a conversation about how to improve your game by better understanding some of the tactics and strategies about positioning. And so the kind of the opener for that is like, you know, we've mentioned positioning is about 80% of the game uh, versus other games that are more about, you know, tempo or whatever. Um, So we're going to try to do a deep dive into what does exactly does that mean? And with that, uh, we'll we'll take our first step into it. We'll try to stay wide and we'll talk about macro uh, game plan strategy. And Arthas, why don't you bring us uh, down this rabbit hole? Right. So firstly, I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to need a pretty good general understanding of the game, right? Uh, it's important to know, to be able to predict what happens next or what you're going to be doing as soon as it's your turn, right? Things like knowing where your units are going, uh, where your opponents are going as well. Um, especially understanding the universal movement order in Stormbound. Can you walk us through that real quick? Yep. If you don't already know, in your perspective, your units, like at the start of your turn, will move forward in a particular order. It's uh, left to right, top to bottom. So like, a, you know, it's like as you read through a page. Um, that is the order that your units move forward and trigger their abilities and whatnot. But it's actually the same for the opponents, except it's from their perspective. So when at the start of their turn, their units will move um, forward uh, starting from the bottom of your screen and then right to left. Because from their perspective, it is like left to right, top to bottom, like for you. So that is important to know because sometimes uh, you can get some crazy uh, damage with, let's say, you have snow masons on the enemy base and then you have another unit next to it. For you, you want your snow masons to be uh, like to the left of the second unit so that the snow masons walks forward first, buffing the second unit, and then that unit walks into the base aside from the other way around where the snow masons won't buff anything. So that's pretty important. And not just that, like I said, it's incredibly important to be able to predict the board state before the card abilities actually trigger at the start of turns or whatever. I want to I want to take a quick step back on that because um, this is a misplay that I've seen actually a couple times now. 
when my opponent has had the opportunity to put two units on my baseline and had free reign, they could have put it top left, top right. I've had this actually happen to me twice where my opponent has chosen to put snow masons in the top left and then another unit to the right of it, just as you suggest, but forgetting yeah. that I can <laughs> trade and only taking two damage from a snow masons really isn't that big of a deal. In those kinds of situations, isn't it better to to also consider not only how your units are going to move, but which unit is protecting what? Yes, of course. The longer you play this game, you re you realize that there are actually some very like somewhat minor, almost insignificant, but can actually make a difference. Cards that have a particular like side of the board that you want them to be in, and I have a few examples for that. For example, like uh, Yowling Weavers. You actually want Yowling Weavers to be closer to the right side of the board more than the left. Again, because of the movement order, left side moves first. You would rather that your other units move as many other units as you can move before Yowling Weavers. Because there is a chance that those other units trade into like enemies and then die. So you get the strength value from them compared to us if Yowling moves. Yelling weavers like move first, kill that unit, and you don't get the value. Things mm. like that. There are actually those very, very small like uh, side biases for particular cards. Not entirely significant, but something that you can definitely keep in mind. Well, well, you say not insignificant, but I, I think one <laughs> of the points that we want to drive home to our our listeners is there's ways as a level fifteen or sixteen to be making platinum and even diamond, but you have small margins because you are playing against a lot of eighteen, nineteen, and twenties. Mm -hmm. These are the margins. This is this is the difference between a W and an L. Yeah, you know what? I take back what I said. You're right. That is what that is what uh, differentiates a good player from just an average player. All right. So walk us through some of the other considerations. So other considerations. Uh, very important. Trigger order. Um, I actually don't want to get into this too much because it's a very in-depth topic. But luckily for you uh, listeners out there, there is a very good resource for this. And if you go to, you know, stormbound-kitty.com, there is actually a trigger order guide talking about which death effects happen first and how it affects other death effects and like chain reactions for you to be able to predict like 90% of the scenarios out there that you see. It's just very, very important. And I suggest that you all uh, check, the, check that out for sure. Yeah, I, ju I just want to put this disclaimer out there. We do not get any sort of money from constantly sending you guys to Stormbound. <laughs> but it's just the best thing for everyone to be doing if they want to get better at this game. And also, a fairy gets its wings every time someone logs onto it. So it's only good things. So now that a few more fairies have gotten their wings from Stormbound Kitty, we're going to transition from uh, discussing the sort of macro considerations of uh, positioning to the micro positions. Now, Subaiku, you are a bit of an aggro player in this game. You play a lot of rush decks. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how positioning should be thought of from an aggressive strategy standpoint. I do play a lot of rush decks. And one of the reasons why I like it is because I think the positioning is a little more straightforward, a little easier to understand. Really, all you want to do is just get units on the baseline so that they hold front and deal damage. And your positioning just flows from that. What you want to do in the early game is play sticky units. By that, I mean something with an on-death effect, like Azure Hatchers or Shady Ghouls or Finite Loopers. 
uh, or play something that gives you multiple spawns that are just harder for your opponent to clear with a single card. Something like Reign of Frogs, which we talked about before, one of the best Shadowfen cards, uh, or Doppelbox, a great swarm card, because it moves your front and distributing the stats across multiple bodies just makes it a little more likely that you're going to hold that front. So what you want to do with especially the on-death effects, you want to understand how am I going to get this spawn to move? You have to remember that the tile where the unit dies, it will not spawn there. If it's being attacked into by another unit, if that unit survives, it will not spawn where that unit is coming from. So for something like Shady Ghouls, that that can make the spawn unable to spawn forward and progress your front. Uh, but for something like Azure Hatchers, where you spawn multiple toads, you can still move your front by getting traded into from your opponent's minions. All right, real quick, a couple of, of uh, um, examples just so our listeners can kind of follow. If I put my Shady Ghouls so it stops right in front of your gifted recruits and then I hit end turn and your gifted recruits attack into my Shady Ghoul, can my Shady Ghoul end up where the recruits just were? No, they cannot. And in that case, the spawn from the Shady Ghoul will go either left or right or backward. Yeah, what's nice with Azure Hatchers here is that uh, its spawn area is uh, surrounding as compared to Shady Ghoul's bordering. So you can actually still spawn forward like to the top right or the top left of where your Azure actually was. So just another example of why Shadowfen has the best cards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. So so that's on the end of my turn. So uh, conversely, if I attack my recruits into your shady ghoul can my shady can your shady ghoul jump into where my recruits just were no no they should not if they should if not the, if the recruits survive the trade the on death effect triggers while the r- remaining strength of the recruits is in the square that it started from gotcha and therefore the spawn will not go with where it is. Perfect. Okay. So now we have an understanding of how sticky units tend to spawn on death. Again, what that means is that if you are attacking with your shady ghoul from the side, we talked about how you will preferentially attack forward, but can go left or right because the shady ghoul has two movement. It can progress your front and then attack from the side. And if you're attacking from the side, then the spawn can move forward because that forward square is unoccupied. It's not a guarantee, obviously. It still depends on what else is in the area. The other things you can do with something like an Azure Hatcher or a Shady Ghoul or a Finite Loopers is use that on-death effect to your advantage. If you're placing that to guard another unit, the spawns can actually then trigger and provide an additional layer of protection. And what I mean by guarding a unit, let's say you have the opportunity to play green prototypes and finite loopers on the same turn on five mana. You play the green prototypes onto your opponent's baseline, and then you protect it with the finite loopers either on the tile next to it or the tile diagonally back from it so that when a unit attacks it will have to attack into the finite loopers before it attacks before a second unit can attack the green prototypes Uh, you want to be able to do that with pretty much everything that you play as an aggressive rush deck because you want to make sure that you're maximizing the chances of your units holding front 
and getting in early damage to the opponent's base. So having the on-death effect as an additional layer of protection is really, really helpful. Yeah, I think early in the game, unless you're trying specifically to move your front, it's almost always preferential to leave it to your opponent to pop your on-death effect and not do it yourself. Like, if you can, keep the original body intact and then let force them to have to trade into it and then clear the remnants because that forces them into a two-unit use, right? Absolutely. As the aggressive deck here, your macro strategy is to pose challenges for your opponent to answer. Make them answer it. If they happen to have Beast of Terror in hand and can pop your Azure Hatcher and then play Beast of Terror to clean up the remnants, that's that's fine. That happens sometimes, but you want to at least make them have A, have it in their deck, and B, have it in their hand. Yeah, it's definitely powerful to uh, not just make the situation good for you but also limiting your opponent's options by forcing them to do a play like that it actually does help you in some sense and it can be enough to win you the game so it's very important it's not just about advantage for you but it's also disadvantage for enemy especially if you can use something like an azure hatcher to draw out a beast of terror and then they don't have a response when you play reign of frogs next turn Right, You just continually hold your front and force them to have a response one after the other and limit, like you said, Arthas, limit what can be done. I do like to use units for bait like that a lot of the time, especially in early turns, green, green prototypes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm opening on three mana. I like to open with my saber paws on one side of the board and my green prototypes on the other side of the board kind of encourages my opponent to trade into the prototype so they get the value from the uh, from the on-death effect there and they get the strength back if they trade it into it. And if they take that bait, then my saber paws are open and I can attack the other side of the board and continue to progress my front and develop my game plan yeah, a lot of people get really hung up on the uh, on-death effect of green prototypes. But if the green prototypes aren't injured and you trade into it, all you've done is damage your own unit and then regain the health. It really, there's no real, like it, it is a juicy bait and a lot of people fall for it. But really at the end of the day, it's it's a wash. And really it lets you commit to a strategy of attacking alternating sides of the board, which is also very helpful. You know, if I set up bait on one side of the board, if my opponent takes that, they're not playing on the side of the board that I want to attack and I can develop multiple units on the opposite side of the board and then they attack over there. Well, that leaves the right side of the board free again and I can go back there and send in some runners for damage or you know, set up shop on their baseline. So are there ever times where you need to just kind of drop something in the middle of the board to try to hold front as a aggressive player? Oh, absolutely. There are definitely times where maybe you let some units come through and you want to actually play some defense. Even a strong rush deck needs to play some defense every once in a while. Maybe you're playing a slower mid-range deck and you want to just kind of pause for a minute, play more conservatively to make sure that your units survive so that they can be buffed by something like an upgrade point or whatever. Just mindlessly attacking the baseline is definitely not the way to go. If you have the opportunity to send in some runners 
get some early damage from you know your saber boss or whatnot and also play a little defense with the witches and set up something big in the middle of the board that's hard for them to clear it'll enable you to kind of just recalibrate and set up your attack again for the future whereas otherwise you'd just be putting witches on their baseline without getting any value from the drain effect and it's easy for them to clear because you only have one minion there a lot of times you really want to just be a little more conservative so that you can finish aggressively as opposed to try to regain the front all right and one last thought about aggressive decks because this is probably my favorite card in the game and i just want to point out to a lot of uh uh, listeners out there how can an aggro or rush deck maximize uh the effectiveness of a card like hysteria oh that's one of my favorite cards too and after the recent change where it's three mana but it affects a higher strength unit i've been running it without even thinking twice and i love playing it where hysteria shines in an aggressive deck is that if the unit that you target with it is on the is on their baseline it is guaranteed to go into their baseline if there are no other units for it to trade into and even if there are other units it's still a percent chance you know if there's one up bordering unit there's still a 50 50 chance that it'll go into the baseline and it'll both deal damage to the base and clear the unit for you which is fantastic that's that's a nice two for one you want to take advantage of that by having small units on their baseline. Maybe you trade your Heliotroopers or Gifted Recruits into something. They trade their West Winds into your two-strength Heliotroopers now. There's a four-strength for you to just send into their base for free, clearing out the rest of their cards, doing some chip damage. Uh, so you really want to set it up like that by having small units left on their baseline that they have to trade something larger into. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be small, right? You can also use your green prototype bait again. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for me... Uh, as a lower level player playing um, against, you know, level 18, 19, 20 kind of players like Arthas, for example, <clears throat> uh, uh, Hysteria has been one of those cards that has really felt good to have in my deck because my opponent has higher level units, right? Even if we're playing the same exact deck, everything of his wins the trades. And so it just kind of is nice to be like, well, you can't cleanly clear the two health I just put on your baseline. You have to leave five or six health behind because your your units are all level five. So you are literally setting up my lethal by clearing that unit. You can't leave it for fear that I might have a runner. But as soon as you trade into it, you're basically killing yourself. It's just a really nice, satisfying kind of win when you get to cast his stare. Your opponent clears your front. You're all the way back to the baseline. Sometimes they even emote you, which just makes it sweeter. <laughs> let's be honest. And it really then, does. And then you give them the handshake, and then you send that hysteria right onto that unit. Oh, gosh, does it get any better? All right, so that's how to play uh, uh, for positioning aggressively. Arthas, walk us through some of the defensive considerations for positioning. Uh, yes, this is definitely uh, this is definitely my element as a control player. <laughs> so um some things to keep note uh is um for defensive strategy um sometimes like let's say in the early game because in, in a game like stormbound where early game actually can make a giant difference on how the rest of the game will play out it's important to play your early game as smart as you possibly can so let's say there are those moments where um at the start of your turn like maybe your unit walks into the enemy base but there are no other 
enemy units on the board. So it's a completely empty board, it's completely neutral, but you still have a front line because your unit walked into the enemy base or traded into another unit. In um, situations like that, sometimes it's actually better just to play your next unit, not by trying to push your front line, going to their second row or putting it into their baseline again, because, I mean, you're just handing out your units to the enemy they can easily clear that out with anything really sometimes it's actually better just to put your unit all the way at the back and maybe bring it to your second row or even the third row because it forces the enemy to have to spend more options to try to clear that unit and sometimes especially in early game they simply do not have the mana to clear that very far back unit you placed so you actually keep at least the second or the third row as your front line to set up the tempo for the rest of the game that's a pretty good thing to think in mind because you don't have to always blindly keep pushing your front and just throwing your units at the enemies right because sometimes it's better just to keep it alive to set up your next turn with that one of the things you can also do and i love doing this is setting up your units in a way so that it trades into an enemy at the start of your turn rather than during your current turn what i mean by that is that it moves forward at the start of your next turn compared to you running it into the enemy in the current turn so here here's an example for uh for this let's say you have a couple units on the enemy baseline you know providing pressure but you also know that the enemy has particular cards that can easily deal with those and you know that if you traded your unit now into the enemy even if it survives or it doesn't then that would be worse there's a very good chance in many situations where the enemy can easily clear that as well so one of the things you can actually do is put your unit like one tile back so that at the start of the enemy turn the enemy's unit moves forward right in front of yours and that enemy unit you're actually using to your advantage because now they cannot reach your friendly unit because they first need to move forward and then attack it because they can't really attack through their own units and that that requires at least like two actions or some kind of like runner to be able to clear that as composed to just a simple one movement card and that's a very good way to keep your front line i'm glad you brought that up because uh with some of the coaching that i've been doing uh of other newer players this is an area that i i see the most amount of mistakes when their opponent plays a giant unit and let's say like they played a giant unit like queen and then right next to queen outcome the uh, dread fawns. so they're just like oh my gosh i've got to get through something and they immediately start using this current turn to trade into something to try to get through all of it. I'm like, what are you doing? You're not going to get, like, none of the units in your hand right now are going to clear anything. And by dumping your entire turn into reducing the health of one of their units, you've conceded 100% of your front, as opposed to, as you propose here, Arthas, you could place some of your units back so that at the start of next turn they'll trade into it it's the same net effect to the opponent's unit it still gets reduced by the same amount of health the difference being that you get to keep front and boy isn't that a nice thing to have in the mid game so yeah i i think this is one of those really important things to kind of drive home you don't have to trade this turn you can set your unit up so that it will move and trade at the start of next turn. And making that big sort of light bulb go off in your head can often be the difference between a W and an L. For sure, for sure. All right, so that is just one of those things that you can do during those uh, occasional circumstances of a neutral board state where everything is empty. But for where the real defense comes in, let's say you're 
being rushed now by an aggressive deck. This is probably the biggest tip in terms of defending against such a deck, uh, such aggressive decks, is you want to be playing your units so that they end up on your second row. Not on your baseline, but on the second row. Because having control of that second row effectively means that you are controlling the furthest front line that the enemy has because they can't put units directly into your baseline, right? The second row is their furthest front. So in a way, your baseline is actually protected by that mechanic. So you want to maximize your leverage by playing units on the second row because let's say you put a really large unit or maybe like let's say a fort of Ebonrock on the second row in one of the middle tiles then the enemy cannot put units into three of those spots on your baseline if they have movement because they would be walking into the Ebonrock or Ebonrock is straight up blocking that tile so they only have the other corner left which you can also easily defend by putting another unit on that corner. Wait, are you suggesting letting a few points of damage into your face to play better defense? Oh yeah, and I, I love to talk about this when I am coaching and helping people. And I say this a lot because sometimes it is so good. I call it using your base HP as a resource. So for example, and I, I perfected this craft during the crazy and terrifying reign of six mana heralds him <laughs> um because like a lot of people when they're trying to defend they always want to like clear 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 when i get rid of as many strength of the enemy as i can i cannot let them like put any damage to me because then i'm closer to dying i mean i guess that's kind of true you're closer to dying but what if you're actually giving yourself more of a shot by taking a little bit of damage so for an example let's say maybe you know the enemy has heralds him, right? Because I want to get back to that. Let's say the enemy has heralds him and they have a unit on your second row. They also have a unit on your baseline. And you can choose which one you want to attack, but you can only attack one of them. In a, in a situation like this, it is probably optimal to actually take and control the second row by clearing that enemy unit on the second row and taking the base damage. Because then when that happens, your enemy cannot use heralds him against you because there are no units left on your baseline because your base has simply traded into it and cleared it for you right like there are also sometimes actually where uh, early game i don't have that much mana to clear too many units like let's say i only have gifted and westwind in my hand at five mana so i can only aim to clear like two units but um at the start of the enemy turn what if there's a chance that uh one of those units survive and they can put two more units so then I have three units to clear, but then I can't actually clear all of them. There are these times when I was playing Winter where instead of freezing an enemy unit on my baseline and keeping it alive, I actually let it walk in because then it's harder for them to put too many for me to deal with. And it actually wins me games. Interesting. Yeah, there are times where I specifically do not freeze a unit that's going to walk into my base so that there are less units for me to deal with next turn. Well, it doesn't matter if you win the game with one health left on your base or 15 health left on the base. You're right. It is an option that you can definitely take, and it, it has to obviously factor into your game plan. But if you're playing defensively, limiting your opponent's options is more powerful than clearing their unit. For sure. So yeah, I just want to reiterate the serious importance of controlling that second row right above your baseline because that just gives you almost all the control against a rush player. So now that we've talked about all of that, 
Um, the next order, I think, is to consider counterplay, right? Consider when you decide how to position your units, consider what your opponent might be looking to do on the following turn. So Sabaiku, walk me through some of the considerations uh, about how to position your units so that your opponent's next turn is worse. Right. So you want to limit your opponent's options. And that requires you to understand what they could do to counter your attack. And then you react accordingly. Um, For example, as the one playing the rush deck, a lot of the times if I only have two units that I can place on on my opponent's baseline, I will not place them side by side in adjacent columns because I'm worried about runners like Warfront Runners or Twilight Prowlers or especially Windmakers where they will just tear through both units and now I'm left with no front and no damage. You can either play them on opposite sides of the board or you can play them diagonally. Um, For example, tuck one into the corner and place the other one kitty corner to it. Uh, But that can leave you weak to other effects such as uh, Crimson Sentry or Void Chargers or Toxic Sacrifice. So knowing what your opponent is capable of playing and knowing the best way to counter that. You know, if, if you know your opponent has Void Chargers, then you definitely want to spread those units out into opposite corners. If you know that your opponent is Shadowfend, you probably want to play around Toxic Sacrifice, Crimson Sentry, or Witches, so you don't want to leave them staggered in such a way that Crimson Sentry will hit both units. And there you do actually want to put them in adjacent columns so that they are in a line that the Crimson Sentry can't hit both of them. Yeah, I find this uh, <laughs> I find this really fun, and this is one of the reasons I love playing Loris um, when you're playing Shadowfen because... <laughs> you know, you know when you when you start to go against better players, they are more aware of avoiding like bordering so that you can't get value from witches or crimson or even blood ministers, right? Because a lot of shadowfin cards have so much synergy with bordering units, so they tend to either play like far apart, right, like left side fully on the left all the way to the right to like avoid toxic, or most of the time, I mean, <laughs> let's be real, it's very hard to uh, avoid toxic sacrifice so the best thing that they can really do is put their units adjacent to each other like they're not bordering an empty tile they're like bordering each other but that's where loris comes in and makes it really sad for them because when they try to like outplay your other cards loris just makes sure that you can't do that (laughs) and it's just funny because when i was playing a tournament game once and someone actually did this to me he played a lot of those bordering cards and loris and i just felt so awkward the entire game because i couldn't put my units anywhere (laughs) no matter what i'm gonna i'm gonna fall into one of the traps it was yeah very fun it's very difficult to play around multiple of these effects at once right like you can't play around toxic sacrifice and twilight prowlers and void chargers and hysteria or loris like you you got to just kind of pick your poison, understand what the deck you're facing is likely to have, and try not to get burned. So hopefully we've given you some ideas tonight on um, how you might want to start improving your game. Uh, if some of these are obvious to you, that's wonderful. Congrats. Uh, you're you're already on your way or maybe all the way there to being a great player. But our hope is that for some of you, uh, some of these concepts are new or at least concepts you've seen 
done against you, but didn't quite fully understand what the tactic was behind them. Uh, and uh, for those of you who want to find out more, remember, you can always, 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 and you should always consider going to the Discord. Uh, there are so many people there who are willing, ready, and able to uh, help you learn some of these higher lore, uh, higher order uh, tactics. And especially with this being an audio medium here uh, and the game being so visually descriptive, it's really hard for us to communicate positioning on the board through your headphones. Uh, but on Discord, you can take a screenshot, share it, and you know people will be happy to help you out that way. It's a lot easier. Even Not better, they can go to Stormbound <laughs> yes. Kitty and use the <laughs> Stormbound to Kitty tool. <laughs> yes, it's called the battle simulator, guys. You can simulate <laughs> any board you want, but any units, any strength, even if it's impossible, <laughs> you can just show and like screenshot it, share it, talk about it. It's amazing. Stormbound Kitty has so many amazing tools and it's all for free. So you guys should totally check it out. And again, we don't get any money whatsoever for this, as sad as I am no, to admit is, that. This is genuine promotion. We love that website. We sure do. <laughs> Well, with that, guys, um, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I know it's a little different than most of the ones that we've uh, had so far where we've you know, debated what cards need to be nerfed or buffed or what's wrong or what's right with the meta kind of a thing. Um, but our hope is that we can slip in a couple of these how to improve the uh, your play of the game uh, kind of episodes uh, throughout the coming months um, so that our listeners get the opportunity to improve themselves and their game. Um, our next episode is probably not going to be in that vein because it will be after November 1st, which means hopefully should Apple uh, approve the update to Stormbound, we will have a whole bunch of uh, 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 nerfs and buffs and burfs even uh, to cards to uh, discuss and debate and to argue over whether or not they are now broken or totally unplayable. <laughs> uh, but along with that, we kind of want to give a little um, uh, PSA now. Uh, it's not that we don't love doing this, guys. It's not that this isn't um, the thing that I personally look forward to doing uh, each and every week. Um, but our schedules are such that uh, uh, doing a weekly podcast is becoming a little too onerous. And uh, to both ensure that what we're providing for everybody is high enough quality content that we're proud of it, and also uh, that, you know, we don't go nuts. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna switch. Uh, not, not yet. Uh, this is episode nine. We, episode 10 will be next week. Uh, because again, the, the meta will be changed and, and that needs to be discussed. But episode 11 won't be the following week. Episode 11 will take two weeks after episode 10. And in that, our plan right now, at least, is to discuss the second uh, monthly BS meta report. But we're going to switch at that point, uh, starting with episode 11 to a bi-weekly schedule. You know, ho hopefully it uh, we don't lose too many uh, listeners. Hopefully this gives everybody an opportunity to catch up if they haven't uh, had the opportunity to go back. Um, but on top of that, just, you know, for our daily lives and whatnot, it's something that kind of needs to happen. Feel free to reach out to us if if this is a problem, if you think this is a mistake, uh, or if you think this is the best idea ever because you want to listen to us less. Uh, you know how <laughs> wow. to get a hold of us. You can, you can always get a hold of us at, uh, uh, at Brood Sages uh, at Twitter. 
or uh, you can always uh, also email us at thebroodsages.com. Uh, and I think that's going, oh, actually, you know what? I take that back. This will not do it because we did, guys. I don't know if you heard, but we did get some feedback this week, which is always the part of this that warms my heart. And it comes from a gentleman named Hellbrood, uh, which makes me hope that he is a Shadowfen player because where else do you <laughs> find broods? Either he loves brood mother Cordia or he loves brood sages. And obviously he loves brood sages because he wrote to us. And this is what he said. He said, hello all. Just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. I have been playing Stormbound casually for years. It's nice to hear you discussing the game and helping the community out. Keep up the good work. Uh, so, Sabaiku, what do you think? Any message back? You made some gender assumptions there. Oh, I apologize. However, to that point, we we love the feedback. Thank you. Uh, we love the positive feedback even more than constructive criticism, but uh, we do want to improve. If you have any thoughts about what we're saying, join us in the Discord. You can find us in the Brood Sages channel. We'd love to continue the conversation there. Yeah, absolutely. Hellbird, tell us how we suck. Arthas. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that uh, more people are reaching out, but you know, obviously, we'd welcome even more feedback. And please do not hesitate to talk to us. We are just people, after all, passionate people of the Stormbound community. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be there to enlighten. And that's going to do it for this episode. For Arthas Sabaiku, I am Freeloader, and we are the Brood Sages, reminding you to stay hydrated. <laughs>